Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. I was 13 years old in 1992 when the Los Angeles riots broke out. Now, I grew up in the suburbs of Orange County, which is just south of Los Angeles, in a, in a little city called Mission Viejo, where I met my wife and um, where my son was born. When I was young, Mission Viejo was, was a blue-collar town. Um, but by the time I was in middle school, there was a demographic shift. As California's economy grew, so did that of Mission Viejo. And attention was mounting in my schools uh, between the working class kids who had grown up in Mission Viejo and the wealthier kids who moved across the country and from all around the world with their families to take jobs. I was first assigned my socioeconomic class in fifth grade by my classmates who called me Pony Boy, referencing my off-brand shoes that I wore while wading through a sea of expensive Reeboks and Nikes. This tension was a sort of microcosm of the social and economic tension that plagued all of California in the 1990s. And Los Angeles was at the epicenter of that tension. For decades, poor black and Latino neighborhoods provided cheap labor for the booming greater Los Angeles area. In the 1990s, on the heels of the Olympics, policing in these neighborhoods became brutal. And by the 1990s, there was a palpable explosiveness that sat just beneath the thick brown smog on the California horizon. In sixth grade, I was introduced to hip-hop. And my favorite group was Public Enemy, whose track Fight the Power personified this explosive atmosphere. I'm getting at least a couple knowing smiles. <laughs> the track gave voice to what I was feeling. There existed a power against which I felt powerless. Chuck D's call to action resonated deep in my soul. And I began looking for ways that I could fight these, to me, ambiguous powers. I fought ambiguously, as though against a pantheon of Greek gods whose will pervaded every inch of earthly life while they sat aloof on Olympus. I was powerless against them, and their power seemed limitless. The summer after my freshman year, I came across my first punk rock album, Frankenchrist by the Dead Kennedys. I apologize for the blasphemy, but that's the name of the, that's the title of the album. And that shows you where my heart was at at the time. I think it was the title that got me there. The Dead Kennedys opened my, opened my ears to the liberating world of punk rock. Politically conscious, intellectually angry, fast and ferocious punk rock. The Dead Kennedys stirred in me that same feeling that Public Enemy did, but they did it by addressing social and class issues that were much closer to home for me. The exploitation of working classes, the obscene political power given to large corporations. They gave voice to the power against which Chuck D had called me to fight. 
They named the Pantheon, and they invited me to exert my power, to fight against the oppressive powers of the age, and fight I did against everything and everyone. Until one night, about a year after I graduated high school, when Jesus called to me through the scriptures and began to reform for me what power really is. This morning, I want us to see in the Beatitudes not a list of disembodied virtues to strive for, but Jesus' description of what power looks like in the kingdom of God. The Beatitudes call us to reframe how we approach power, first in how we respond to power imposed on us, and second, how we ought to responsibly deal with the power given to us. Jesus sidesteps the pantheon of earthly powers in favor of reliance upon God's power. As Christians, we're invited to relinquish our, early, our earthly crowns in exchange for heavenly ones, abandoning any claims to power over others in exchange for an ever-increasing capacity to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, this isn't high and lofty political or theological speak, but rather it's a reformation of our friendships, of every relationship. Jesus' revolution moves from small, from tiny, the size of a mustard seed, to huge, a tree, a tree large enough to house all the birds of the air. And so to his disciples who desperately want to hear great teachings about how to overthrow Rome, Jesus declares, our revolution will begin with how you treat your children, your parents, your neighbors, your servants, your bosses. Rome can wait. The Beatitudes aren't a set of unattainable personal virtues, but rather a framework for friendship that radicalizes how humans see each other. In order to see this, though, we, we have to first acknowledge that each of us experiences these, push, these pushes and pulls of power. And to do that, there's a vehicle. <laughs> um, consider the power you've been given by the great state of Colorado in the form of a driver's license. What happens in your heart when the driver in front of you, a real human being with a life, and worries, and relationships, and aspirations, and kids. What happens when that driver goes five miles an hour under the speed limit on I-25? Do you exert your seemingly God-given right to encourage that person to drive the speed limit by showing that you can drive the speed limit despite their being in front of you? What happens in your heart when you see a blinker requesting a lane change? on the car in front and in the next lane of you? Which pedal does your foot find, the gas or the brake? What do you do with the power that you're given on the road? How do you, re how do you react to the power others, others have over you on the road? Now, while hopefully, hopefully your relationships are managed a little differently than your road habits, how differently? In what ways differently? Do you coerce those around you? Do you tailgate your kids, your spouse, servers at restaurants, customer service agents, tech support? 
How do you respond to others' attempts at coercion? When you feel someone tailgating you, what's your response? We all coerce. We all exercise our power, and there's grace for that. But Jesus' way offers us freedom from the endless cycle of responding to and abusing power. Now, before we talk about the Beatitudes, direct, the Beatitudes directly, we have to understand what the word beatitude, what the word blessed actually means. The word comes from a Greek word, makarios, and it's used outside of the New Testament, in Homer, in fact, to describe the carefree and prosperous nature of the gods. And don't we attempt to exert our power in pursuit of becoming carefree and prosperous like the Olympian gods? But Jesus declares that it is only in relinquishing our power, submitting to his power, that we can have this experience of blessedness, of carefreeness. The meek, for instance, are not blessed because meekness is just so awesome. The, the meek are blessed because they trust in the saving power of Christ instead of in their own power. Let's then take the Beatitudes in turn and see how they are a call for the believer to reframe her relationship with power. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In order to relinquish our personal power, we have first to admit our need for God, our poverty for God. There is nothing with which we can buy spiritual things. We cannot buy our salvation. We cannot buy rest. We cannot buy that peace that surpasses all understanding. These are gifts from God. They are the furniture of the kingdom of heaven. They come with the kingdom of heaven. By giving the poor in spirit the kingdom of God, just, just giving it to us, Jesus flips spiritual poverty, poverty on its head, removing the implement of human power in the face of poverty, which is money. After all, what is money if not the human attempt to make power pocket-sized in denarii and dollars? Ironically, an insistence upon spiritual currency is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. Grace demanded from Christ without obedience to him. There isn't a correct theology. There isn't a correct set of practices. There is no currency that allows us to demand his grace. It is not owed to us, but it is freely given to those who realize their need for God and turn to God through Christ. As American consumers, we've become accustomed to the power of money, haven't we? We demand goods, and experience, goods experiences, and services because we've paid for them. This insistence upon exchange informs our relationships, both with God and with our neighbors. We are carefree and prosperous in these relationships when we realize that relationship itself is a gift for which nothing can be exchanged. Now, where do we, in our relationships, rely on currency? Quid pro quo kind of exchanges. Or, as the psalmist this morning put it, where do we lend our money at interest? Do we do for others that they might do for us? Or do we do for others out of the abundant promise that ours is the kingdom of heaven? He's given it to us, and we can give it in turn. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now we have to ask, how, how can mourning be carefree and prosperous? But in mourning, we, we first relinquish our power to change an outcome. Death is mourned in its finality. We can't undo it. Lost love is mourned in remembering what once was and submitting to God's comfort in the irrevocable reality of its loss. In mourning, the Christian stops ignoring the reality of a broken world and responds with God's heart. Uh, This is different from the Stoic whose response to tragedy is simple acceptance of the tragic and yet who remains unchanged by the sorrows of this world. You cannot be comforted if you never mourn. It is also different from the nihilist who declares victory for the corrosive nature of sin. And as a punk rocker, I had a relationship with nihilism. My friends, all is not vanity. As the preacher resolves in Ecclesiastes, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. Because God will bring every deed into judgment. We are freed to mourn because we know that God will comfort. God will bring all things right. And so now we can mourn that they are not. Mourning, though, puts loss in its place. Into the hands of Jesus, the Redeemer. And in so doing, puts the Christian in her place. At the mercy of the loving Lord. Mourning allows the Christian to rest in the comfort of Christ, freeing her from clinging to her relationships. There's something wonderfully precious about the time we get to spend together as friends, and it's it's almost always tainted by the knowledge that we will one day mourn the loss of one another. Children leave home, friends move away, parents pass. But we can share in the Lord's heart of sorrow at these things. And knowing that in mourning we will be comforted by Christ, that there is a time to mourn and a time to dance, frees us to revel in the fleeting moments we have together instead of exerting our power in fear of loss. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It might be that the best English translation for the word prouse, which we usually hear is meek, um, but I think it might be better served as being translated as powerless. So the word prouse in the Greek, I think, is powerless. Matthew uses, uses this word twice to describe Jesus. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am prouse, meek, powerless, lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Again, Matthew uses the word prouse to translate Zechariah's prophecy of Jesus' riding into Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, prouse, meek, powerless, and mounted on a donkey. When we are meek, we align ourselves with Jesus. Jesus' life was in full submission to God the Father. He said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, 
but the will of him who sent me. Jesus, by his own admission, was powerless apart from God. We've seen that just as Jesus' powerless was answered in the resurrection, so too will will our powerlessness be answered by the will of God. Meekness, then, is defined by Christ relinquishing his own power by trusting in God's infinite power. But in this beatitude, Jesus also shows us the link between power and personal gain. All power grabs for something. All power wants. Power on the roads grabs for lane possession or a need to get somewhere on time. Political power grabs for control over people. Power in our relationship, our relationships, grabs for influence over our friends and neighbors. We strive to have our needs met in others, and when they aren't met, we reach out in whatever power we have. Emotional manipulation, yelling, passive aggression, and we do that to force our needs to be met in others. Power, in other words, is not a means to an end, or is a means to an end, sorry, Let me start that sentence over. Power, in other words, is a means to an end, not an end in itself. We reach and stretch for power to control our friends, our neighbors. We reach for power over our kids, over our circumstances. We reach for power over death. We reach because we want. We instrumentalize our neighbors. We make make other humans instruments of our will in order to gain But Jesus answers our wants, declaring that in powerlessness and in powerlessness alone, we inherit the whole earth. The meek, in other words, are blessed because they are are carefree and prosperous. They're blessed because they shall inherit the earth. This strips away the means by giving us the ends. It cures our wanting by granting us the whole earth. It frees us from demanding our needs to be met in others in favor of meeting others' needs. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, I opened this sermon telling you a little bit about my personal power history, and I encourage you to reflect this week on your own personal power history. How has, how has power, those pushes and pulls, how has that shaped your life? Jesus has radically changed me, but I still have Chuck D and Flava Flav pumping their fists and shouting, fight the power, playing through my head most days. I'm still plagued by the dead Kennedy's call to action in the face of systematic social injustice. So I need to say that meekness doesn't imply inaction because we are blessed when we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, Father Jordan reminded us last week that when we seek for justice, we find it in God alone, not in our actions. But this doesn't preclude action. This doesn't negate action. Like much of the gospel, the Beatitudes examine our hearts, the wells from which we live our lives. If If I see injustice and I'm convinced that I am the instrument of justice, I will reach out in power. The power of words, the power of fists, the power of fire to achieve justice. But as Christians, we relinquish these powers. 
trusting in the power of God to answer injustice. We pray with the psalmist, you, Lord, destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty, deceitful man. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. We hand our power over to him. But after we do, and only after we do, we ask him how we ought to act. O Lord, we pray, I hunger and thirst for your righteousness. Satisfy me. Make your way straight before me that I may walk in it. There are times when God gives us power to make things right. And when he calls us to act, we must act mercifully, in purity of heart, making peace. It's easy to make this big, to speak of pursuing righteousness in the face of political injustices, like I did when I was younger, and like I do most days, to fight the pantheon. But first, we have to keep this small, local, Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness in your relationships? When you're wronged by a spouse or a friend or a parent, does your heart yearn for it to be made right? Of course it does. And Jesus said that that hunger will be satisfied. And this promise frees you to step mercifully in reconciliation with purity of heart, not in vengefulness or schadenfreude. And your steps can be towards peace, not just in making yourself feel better. It's likely that you will not regain what you've lost in broken relationships, and maybe you're not meant to. There are relationships that do not need to be restored, so mourn them. But you can be an instrument of peace, knowing that you're a child of God. The pursuit of power is the wisdom of this world, in Paul's Paul's words this morning. Uh, This week we've seen how pervasive and corrupt the pursuit of power, this wisdom, has become in our world. The five policemen who murdered Tyre Nichols were grasping for power. The five mass shooters in California, Iowa, and Washington who this week left 24 families to mourn or grasping for power. Israel and Palestine continue to squeeze families and individuals out of peaceful lives in pursuit of power. Friends, this demon is in deep. And stepping out of the stream of human wisdom can seem absolutely exhausting. Relinquishing our power when the world has doubled down sounds like anything but good news, anything but an easy burden or a light yoke. It makes us vulnerable and easy targets, and so it makes us scared. And if you've listened for the last 20 minutes or so and are feeling exhausted by these words, like a burden has been placed on you, I want you to consider the beatitude in light of Paul's exhortation. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us, who are being saved, it's the power of God. Jesus invites us into a world, into Jesus invites us and the world into a different way of life 
One in which power is weakness, wealth is poverty, and mourning is beautiful. That sounds like folly until you draw near him through word and sacrament and prayer and see that it's true. It's so true that God gave his only son that whoever believes in him, walks with him, follows him, may be caught up into the reality of the Beatitudes. Whoever believes in him steps out of the striving stream of human wisdom and is swept away by the saving, restful waters of Christ. While the pursuit of power is wisdom of the world, the pursuit of Christ and his cross is the wisdom of God. It is restful wisdom because it is an invitation to rest in him. It is good because he is good. It's powerful because he is power. So friends, this morning I invite you to rest. Not in your own wisdom, not in your own power, but rest in the saving power of Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.